Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. And the challenge for a lot that a lot of people love about climbing is that it's not just a physical endeavor, it's also a mental endeavor, because you have to figure out this puzzle of sorts on your way up the wall as you climb it. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, and today I am sadly not joined by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Uh, Allison and I have had a really weird schedule this week. I am dealing with an interstate move, and then uh, we had scheduled the taping, and then Allison suddenly got pulled away. And so it's just me today, but that's all right, because then we can focus on a great interview that Allison and I did a couple weeks ago. We wanted to start exploring the new sports that will be on the program for Tokyo 2020. And first up, we have sport climbing, and we talked with Josh Levin. Josh is one of the most well-rounded competitors in sport climbing, and he has an impressive youth record with 19 national championship titles five continental championships, multiple U.S. speed climbing records, and he won the bronze medal at the 2008 Youth World Championships. He also competed at the 2014 Youth Olympic Games, and he was a mentor at the 2018 Youth Olympic Games. He's now competing on the international circuit, and in 2018, he was the Tokyo Speed Champion. You might also recognize him from multiple seasons on American Ninja Warrior and its related competitions. Josh talked with us about how the sport works. Take a listen. Okay, Josh, let's start first by talking about the sport of sport climbing. What is going to happen for Tokyo is that there's three disciplines, but all the athletes are competing in all of them, and then their scores are combined to get one medal, correct? Correct. Okay. So the three disciplines are speed, bouldering, and lead climbing. So let's start with speed. That that makes, it sounds like a race. So let's sure. talk. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it is as simple as that. Yes, that, that is correct. So I guess just big picture for any listeners or viewers who have never heard of or seen competition or sport climbing before. Yes, there are three distinct disciplines. 
two are difficulty based. That would be lead climbing and bouldering, and one is speed based, and that is speed climbing. Most are pretty straightforward, uh, and the idea with this first Olympic event in Tokyo is that again you're going to be doing all three events, and then your scores are combined into one final score, and whoever has the best score will win the gold medal. So it'll be very, very similar actually to the gymnastics all-around event. So if you're familiar with that event, then you'll love climbing as well. <laughs> That's the down dirty, super basic, just the whole sport. And of course, with the sport itself, it will start with speed climbing. So just as it sounds, speed climbing is about whoever gets to the top of the wall fastest. It's a really, really quick event. World records for speed climbing on a 15 meter, it's about 48 foot tall wall, are in the sub six second times for men and uh, in the low seven second times for women. So Yikes. it's really quick. It's yeah. from what I've heard, I believe it's the fastest Olympic event. I'm, I'm, I believe that's true <laughs> uh, as, as compared to just raw time. So that'll be really exciting to see as far as Olympic fans are concerned. But yeah, it's a pure vertical race. The things to look for in the speed event is that there'll be two lanes uh, left lane and right lane, and the competitors will race each other up. So it'll be the exact same on both sides, and whoever gets to the top first advances to the next round. And then, what the thing to know about this wall is that it is it maybe looks flat from when you're looking at it, but it's actually a little bit overhanging. It's five degrees overhanging, so it's a little steeper than it looks from when you were just looking at it straight on. And the holds that are on the wall are exactly the same all over the world. So it's possible to see world records get broken. Uh, it's possible to have competitors break their own personal records, have national records. And, of course, we will be having the first ever Olympic record in speed climbing. So that'll be cool to see. <laughs> but, yeah, it'll be a really cool event. It'll be over very, very, very quickly. So don't blink. And the athleticism of the athletes in speed climbing is really cool to watch. So, okay, now I, I have a question. Off. Yeah. about what something sure. you just said mm -hmm. so it's run like long track speed skating where it's two racers at a time mm -hmm. but it's not everybody's time is compared it's just whoever wins that heat moves on yeah it'll be similar to uh i mean if you're an american fan then you'll see like march madness style bracket it's a bracket system whoever whoever wins the race moves on whoever loses is eliminated Okay, so you don't need to worry about what your pure time is. You just have to beat the guy next to you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you get points for whoever wins that gets points. How many points do you get? That's a good question. So the way that the overall rankings will be determined, and this is where it starts getting a little bit more confusing, but you know, bear with me. <laughs> the way that they have decided to do the scoring for this Olympic event, and again, it could change in future Olympic events, is what they're going to do is they're going to take your ranks from each of the three disciplines. So let's say you placed first in speed climbing, second in bouldering, and third in lead climbing. They take each of those individual placements or ranks, and we're going to multiply them together. So it may sound confusing. So that would be one multiplied by two multiplied by three. One times two is two. Two times three is six. And that's your final ranking points so at the end of the event whoever has the lowest score the best score will be the overall champion so this is like old school figure skating ordinals 
Uh, yeah. Just, just say yes, Josh. It's, yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying for people listening who, who you know, in the old 6.0 era, it was not the mm. number that mattered. It was your rank in comparison uh, to yeah. everybody else. Exactly. So this is the same Correct. thing where it doesn't matter whether you're 5.14 or 5.78. Mm-hmm. It just matters how fast everybody else is or what rank everyone else is in comparison. Correct. That's that is confusing. Yeah. So it'll be confusing for sure, but bear with us. And, you know, the, the most important thing is to know, uh, especially about like this whole climbing event as a whole, is again, there's three different events and whoever has, you know, overall the best possible score in which will be, they'll have calculators and we'll figure it out on TV. Don't worry about trying to figure it out yourself. <laughs> that, that'll be the person who will be the Olympic champion. Interesting. So, so back to mm-hmm. speed climbing and its nuances. At the top, do you have to touch a pad or something to stop the clock? Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like in swimming. And how far down does the clock go? Is it tenths, hundredths of a second, thousandths of a second? It'll probably be displayed in hundredths of a second, although the current timers that we have in climbing competitions are capable of measuring to the thousandths of a second, which has come into play a couple times in my experience. So, yeah, because we'll I wondered <laughs> if it, like, as we compare other sports, because luge is the only one that goes to thousands of a second, but I can oh, yeah. see if everybody is going, like, sub six and sub seven seconds, how trying to get a differentiator can be ne- a necessity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a race I saw uh, earlier last year that was one by one one thousandth of a second. Oh, one millisecond. Wow. really close. <laughs> wow. We could we could see that differential at the Olympic Games. You never know. Wow. When you are attacking this hill, what are I mean, you're trying to go up fast, but how do you what what are the techniques you use to get up there and what are you grabbing and kind of bounding off on? Sure. So I mean the again the the question mostly concerns like how do you approach it or what are you mm-hmm. grabbing itself? Um and it, it varies for each of the three disciplines. So again, in speed climbing, it is a standardized course that is the same all over the world. So no matter where you go in the world, it will always be the exact same 50-meter wall with the exact same hold, the exact same setup, the exact same angle of wall. So no matter what, you can have your own personal best time and, and work on it from there. And the holds are homologated, so it's exactly the same. And they're reasonably comfortable to grab. So if you're I've never tried rock climbing before. You could actually reach up and grab one of these holds and understand, okay, like, it's kind of like pulling myself over the ladder. The only difference is that the ladder runs are spaced, like, very far apart, and it has this kind of unique pattern that was uh, agreed upon about 12 years ago that that has been decided is this is the official speed wall. So that's speed climbing. Uh, the other two disciplines, again, are difficulty-based instead of speed-based. So instead of trying to go up as fast as you can, the goal is just to get to the top, period. And what will happen is that the International Federation of Sport Climbing will bring in specialized, what we call setters, where people who take holds from you know, a selection and put them on the wall in a new and unique way that the competitors have never seen before. And the challenge for a lot, that a lot of people love about climbing is that it's not just a physical endeavor it's also a mental endeavor because you have to figure out this puzzle of sorts on your way up the wall as you climb it so it's a very tricky way of 
doing this like athletic feat because you don't have to only have to be the best physically, but you also have to be the best mentally. And that's why I think a lot of people when they're trial climbing uh, for the first time really enjoy about it because it's kind of combining the athleticism of something like swimming with the brain challenge of chess. You actually have to figure out your way up the wall as you go. So sometimes these holds will be very large and you will grab them quite easily. But other times will be very, very small and you're only able to use the very tips of your fingers to pull yourself in your entire body weight up the wall. That's the challenge we're facing in both lead climbing and bouldering. So in the difficulty sections, mm-hmm. when you walk up to that wall, have you seen it at all before? Like, do you get a walkthrough? Yes. So the way that the bouldering and the lead climbing will work is, again, they're two separate events. They're both based on difficulty, but they're different because lead climbing is going up quite high off the ground. So maybe up to, again, 15 meters, about 50 feet. And bouldering is actually relatively short. You're only going up maybe three to four meters or called 15 feet. And when you're doing something like bouldering, you're actually not using any safety ropes, but there are safety mats, like gymnastic mats, underneath you in case it'll fall. So physically, the difference between uh, lead climbing and bouldering is that lead climbing is much more of an endurance event. Like you're doing a lot of individual moves that may be not quite as difficult, but overall the cumulative effect is that you get quite fatigued over the course of the whole 50-foot wall that you're trying to do as you're climbing it. And bouldering, again, you're trying to do a very short and very few number of moves, but these moves are condensed and they're very, very difficult. Like the hardest individual movements a a human can do on the wall. So you'll see a lot more falls and you have a little bit more, you know, you have more than one attempt to try these climbs to try and get as far as you can or get to the top if if possible. But going back to your question about if you've seen the climbs before, there's a yes and no answer to this. So no, none of these competitors, when they turn around, they look at the first climb, bouldering climb or lead climb uh, in Tokyo, will have ever viewed these climbs before in their entire lives. So it'll be brand new for everybody, same, even playing field. Um, that's the problem-solving aspect. But the unique element is that before you take your turn to climb, each of the, com- like the competitors will get a five-minute chunk of time to look at the route and discuss it with their fellow competitors directly. So what you'll see is this period of time called observation, where in both bouldering and lead climbing, the competitors, no matter what country they're from, will be discussing their strategy, their tactics to try and tackle these walls to get as far as they can and sharing ideas about how to get up, which is super cool because, again, it really highlights the, the, really, the true spirit of Olympism and working together to overcome this like really big challenge, even though they're competing directly against each other. And it actually is a competitive advantage to share information because if you share something like, oh, you know, I think I might go left hand to that blue hold over there. Then your competitor would say, oh, that's a great idea. I also think you want to put your left foot on that tiny little speck over there that you may not have seen. And then you're like, oh, that's great. And then you'd be able to share information and build on each other's ideas in order to help all of you guys get higher. So again, that's something that you will see before all the competitors climb is this period of time called observation, uh, which is really interesting because from my experience, it's unique to climbing in the fact that the competitors share information directly with each other uh, in order to help not only themselves succeed, but their fellow competitors that they're competing directly against succeed as well. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And that whole, even though it's a competition, the the sharing of information because it's it's also like everybody is building a common strategy, but what's going to set you apart is your athleticism and ability to execute that, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Or if there's a surprise that maybe you didn't see from the ground, you're able to have that wherewithal to make that adjustment on the fly. Interesting. So with bouldering, do you get a specific time amount to attempt to go up the wall? Correct. Yeah. So okay. usually you know, what we'll see in the, the final at the Olympic event in Tokyo will be that the competitors will have, I believe, four or five minutes, and they'll have uh, four different boulders, or the, different climbs. And so we'll, we'll try one of the climbs one at a time. And what will happen is, again, so we, we talked about how the, the competitors have never seen these climbs before. So the, the, the really big commodity, I would say, is information. So what we're, the, the format actually dictates is that the competitors, not only are they never, they've never seen these climbs before, but they're also not allowed to watch their fellow competitors try the climbs themselves. So they can talk about them beforehand, but as soon as that period of observation is over, then all the competitors are taken back into a special room that we call the isolation room, and you are not allowed to watch your fellow competitors try these climbs, because if you do, you would get more information the later on in the start order you would go. So that's the, the really big uh, difference between climbing and a lot of other sports. So after they're taken back into the isolation zone, competitors come out one at a time and you'll get, you know, for the first boulder, we, in English we call them boulder problems because it's a, you have to solve a problem. <laughs> so for the first boulder problem, we they would come out and they have about four or five minutes to try and get to the top, you know, in as many tries or attempts as possible. So obviously the, the best way of ascending this boulder problem to get the most number of points would be to do to get all the way to the top on your very first try. That's what we call an on-site or a flash of the climb. So that's the best possible way of ascending this problem. So of course, from there, you get more, like incremental points based on how high up you get if you don't get all the way to the top, and those points will be tabulated amongst all four of the climbs that you try. And the idea, again, with the whole idea of this bouldering event as a discipline uh, will be that the four different climbs usually will highlight four different styles of climbing. So maybe one will be on a very overhanging wall. So like the, the grade of incline will be very, very steep and the moves will be maybe much more powerful. Whereas another climb may be on a flat wall that would be, you know, marginal inclination but the holds are very, very, very small, and you have to trust your feet and your balance a lot more than you do uh, power or endurance. So the whole idea of again bouldering is to test the single most difficult individual moves any human or person can do on a climbing wall, and you're only going up you know, 10 to 15 feet or so, but you're testing your strengths and skills over the course of four different climbs, and at the end, those four different climbs are tabulated to form a final result for that bouldering discipline. So again, after you've done speed climbing, you have your ranks from that, and that will be combined with your rank from bouldering, and that will be combined with your rank from lead climbing to create a final overall ranking point, which will determine the Olympic champion. And now, when you say a grade of incline, which mm -hmm. way is it inclined? 
Like, are you going, ah. <laughs> yeah, is it a sort of tipped <laughs> toward the floor or you're going kind of uphill away from? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you can imagine, like, if, if you walk into a stairwell, you'd be climbing, like, the backside of the stairwell, like the most difficult part where, you know, your body is hanging underneath you and you have to use a lot more of your arms and your grip strength to help yourself get up the wall. Yeah, that, that's what I figured you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, wait, so you could hang off the wall in theory. You could be holding oh, yeah. by your hands and your body yeah. will be falling away from the wall. Yeah, and you, you're going to see a lot of movements, especially in bouldering, uh, where people are going to be not only hanging by you know one or two hands, but one or two fingers even. And even more than that, you'll see quite a few movements in Sure where people will be doing jumps between holds that'll be it'll look a lot more like parkour sometimes and it will like very static climbing so the idea with this again to try and test the limits of what the body the human body is capable of doing on these very very difficult climbing terrains that again like with bouldering you're trying to test the, the sheer individual difficulty of movement so you'll be testing people's finger strength people's coordination people's balance agility all of the above. And, you know, you're going to be seeing some really cool feats of athleticism where people are going to be literally hanging from one or two fingers just by themselves on the, on the edge of the wall, doing movements with them, doing one-arm pull-ups, doing these crazy coordination jumps. It'll be a really cool spectacle to see if you've never watched climbing before. But there's no judging in terms of you don't get a score for how artistic or how difficult or how coordinated you were to do that <laughs> yeah so there's no subjective judging in climbing the only judging that would occur is whether or not a competitor achieved a certain high point or not so again like the climbing is a relatively objective sport speed climbing is obviously based on pure time so there's no judges there and lead climbing and bouldering the only time judging really comes into play is if there's a kind of a subjective call i would say whether or not a competitor reached a certain hold or not because before the climbs are even attempted the people who put these times in the wall will kind of get together and decide okay you know we want usually they'll for the lead climbing especially the easiest way of explaining this is that they'll have a whole lead climb route put on the wall so it's about 50 feet tall uh very difficult but not as difficult as bouldering it's a little bit more endurance based and so they'll have a route going, zigzagging its way up the wall with many different types of holds and angles and terrain. But the idea is that they'll have kind of an, uh, a general idea in their mind is about how a competitor would approach doing this climb. And the way that the, the scoring would work is they'd say, okay, well, you start at the very bottom. And if you start there, you get one point. The next hold is worth two points. The next hold after that is three points. And it's not like if you skip holds, you're skipping points. It's just if you get to the 45th hold, you get 45 points. So that's the kind of scoring you're going to be seeing on the wall. You'd be like, okay, that competitor is that hold 37. They're at, they have 37 points. The only place where a judge's call would come into play is whether a climber controlled a certain hold. That's the wording we use. And what I mean by that is let's say a competitor is really fatigued and they're super tired and they're about to fall. And of course, with lead climbing, you're going up 50 feet, so there's safety groups involved. And it's, it's very, very safe. <laughs> so 
they're, they're going up and they're really fatigued. They go into a tiny, really small hole that you can only grip with the very edges of your fingers and they slip and they fall. So the question now becomes, okay, did they get 46 points or 47 points? And they can actually go back and look at some slow-mo video to see, okay, well, you know, they're, what they're looking for is did their uh, body come to a full and complete stop or did they actually utilize this next hold in a way that showed that they had mastery or control over the next hold or was it more of a they were going for the hold and they touched it and then as they were touching it, they slipped off. So differentiating between those two factors does come down to, you know, if the climbers are very evenly matched as far as ability. Some people will get to the exact same point, but one person will hold on and control hold for maybe a split second where another competitor will maybe jump for that hold and not be able to control it with their body weight and therefore fall off. Okay. The coolest part of watching bouldering on TV will be some of the slow-mo replays you get to see, which will really highlight just how strenuous of an activity this can be at the highest level because you'll see just the how small of a hold these people can pull and jump and do ridiculous moves off of. <laughs> and then with lead climbing, again, it's a little bit more endurance-based. So it'll be about, the time limit will be six minutes for each of the competitors. And no more than that will they spend on the wall. Uh, but there'll be much longer climbs. It'll be much more about uh, how high they can get up the wall or if they can get all over the top. And the, the cool part about lead climbing is it's very traumatic. Like you'll be watching people climb up 50 feet in the air with only a rope for safety protection. And, you know, they're going for these really exciting movements and, and trying to get as far as they can because at the very end of that event, they're fighting for that Olympic gold medal. So it'll be really dramatic to see, okay, well, if this person can make it to this hole, they will win the gold. It'll be on the podium in bronze medal position. Or, you know, if this person gets farther, it'll bump them out of this podium position. So that's where the drama will really be highlighted. You'll get to see some very, very, very close finishes, I'm sure. And, of course, you know, it'll be spectacular to see because it's the highest of the events as far as it being a difficult event. So <laughs> that will be really exciting to watch. After you have your turn, do they send you back to the isolation booth or do you get to watch the rest of it? After each of the bouldering events, yes. So okay. after each of the different bouldering climbs that you get to do, you just sent back into the isolation zone. So you cannot see anybody else climb. But after you've completed your lead climbing event, uh, the competition is over. So at that point, everyone can watch and cheer each other on. They'll have like a little winner's circle, I'm sure, <laughs> for people who are on the podium at that point in time. And they'll be able to kind of see how the competitors that have climbed after them are doing in relation to them. So I'm sure there'll be some very dramatic back and forth on TV. You go like, oh, what's the, this person's reaction? Oh, they just won the gold medal. Or, oh, they just got bumped off the podium. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be pretty dramatic, I'm sure. <laughs> and when you go back to the isolation zone, are you allowed to talk to people? Mm -hmm. Or no, once you've competed? You're, you're done because um, then that's sharing more information. <laughs> true, yeah. So it, it depends. So... In between each of the different, like if I was going to go back to bouldering specifically, in between each of the different climbs, like let's say I did the first climb and I came back into the isolation zone, I would not be able to talk to the competitors that have not tried that first climb yet. But after they have all tried the first climb, then they can discuss like, oh, you know, we're all done with this climb. How did you do on it? Or like, what did you do for this move that like I got stuck on? You can kind of share experiences with that. 
So that's the, the bouldering element of it. With lead climbing, it, it consists of only one climb. After you do the observation period, you each go back. You all go back into the isolation zone. And at that point, before you all climb, you can actually discuss your strategy for how you want to tackle this one singular climb that you're about to try. So again, you, you looked at it in person, you can discuss, okay, I think I'll go left hand there, and there, the person you're looking at it with said, oh, that's true, I'll, can, I'll go left foot there, and you share information there. But the more impressive thing is that even behind the wall, they're refining their tactics, because one of the big things that we train a lot in climbing is what we call route reading. And that's the ability to look at a climb that has 50 distinct movements or 50 distinct holds that are brand new you've never seen before and only after five minutes have memorized it as best as you possibly can so that way your entire time leading up into the climb you're about to do you're mentally going through each and every single one of these movements to make sure that you're visualizing all different possible ways of doing it so it's a really tricky mental approach that you have to have and Again, the, the physical capacity of these athletes is really high, of course, but I think the more impressive thing is the mental aspect of it as well, because you not only have to be physically the top athlete in the world, but you mentally have to be able to memorize basically a 50-piece puzzle <laughs> and then go back into a, an isolation room after five minutes and me- be able to memorize that in order to come out and be the most successful on this climb. So what do you do to develop that mental game? So a lot of the strategies to build up mental capacity for solving these routes or or puzzles on the wall is just doing shorter versions of it over time and and building up the, uh, again, I guess like cranial capacity, if you want to say, like to be able to solve these problems or these routes for as many moves as you can do. So a lot of the training that we do involves on a wall that's filled with tons and tons of holds you pick out a certain sequence of moves through a lot of the holds and you do it a couple of times and then ideally be able to turn around facing away from the wall so you can't see it and then be able to, as descriptively as possible, explain which holds you use to go through this wall, other sequence. So you say, okay, I started with both hands on the long purple hold and then I moved up left hand to the small green one with the hole in the middle. And then right hand went up to the blue one with a two-finger indent on the right side. So that's the kind of level of detail these athletes are trying to achieve when they both train and when they're doing their observation period. That way they can go back into the isolation zone, understand what the climb is on a much deeper level, visualize it, and then be able to be the most successful they can be to be able to get to the top of the climb. Interesting. How does the start order for each section determined? Uh, the start order for each of the different disciplines, in the final at least, will be determined based on reverse ranking from the previous discipline. So when it goes from speed climbing to lead climbing, or bouldering, I should say, the, the first one is speed climbing, the second event will be bouldering. Whoever placed the worst in speed climbing will go out first and then so on and so forth until you get to the best. And then after uh, the bouldering event, whoever combined between bouldering and speed climbing has the worst score will then go out first for lead. So that way, as a spectator, it's the most dramatic (laughs) when you're watching because you know that the last person to go has, in theory, the best shot at winning the gold medal. So that's the kind of element you'll get to see from a spectator side and a competitor side 
it's a little different because going out first there's a little bit less pressure because maybe the, the crowd isn't they don't really know how high off the ground anyone can get so however high you go is going to be the highest anyone's gone at that point <laughs> but at the same time there is a little bit of an element that maybe we're not aware of as a spectator is that not when you go back to the isolation zone as a competitor you can't see how your fellow competitors are doing but usually you can hear how the crowd is reacting to their climb so usually it's pretty apparent or pretty obvious if a competitor either gets to the top or gets very very high off the ground and as a competitor if you're going later in the starting order or if you're like the last competitor to go let's say you're you're going to the last lead climbing you're in the gold medal position you're going out last and you know that the last competitor to go you know just based off of the crowd's cheers got really really high off the ground but did not get to the top of the wall because you heard the crowd go ah at the very end (laughs) and these are like you know audio cues that we we look for as climbers because we know roughly what the the, how high the bar is so to speak (laughs) and so when you're going out there it's really important to know know this but also put that in the back of your mind and really focus on your own performance that's the only thing you can control about your own climbing style and, and ability and performance, obviously. So going out there again, if you're the last competitor to go, you know roughly how high the, the previous competitor got. Or if they got to the top, you know roughly how fast they got there. So you kind of have this knowledge in the back of your mind. All right, you know, if I make it, if I make it to the top, you know, I can win a gold medal. And that's the mentality these competitors have to have coming out, especially if you're the last climber to go, because the pressure is the highest. It's the, the gold medal moment, the make or break event, and it's really all on the line in this final, final battle of wits and wills versus, with, again, the competitor versus the wall. Like, that's the battle you have to watch for. So seeing their in their eyes how much they want it, the fire, the passion, the energy, the, the relaxation they have to have in this, like, very high-pressure moment, but also, of course, you know, if they get to the top or if they get higher than the rest of the competitors, the seeing the the sheer joy or, or uh, gratification they have with all their training coming to fruition and paying off this like one moment of performance. So talk to us a little bit about some of the surfaces, I guess might be the right word, because I, I was watching some sure. bouldering particularly. And when I look at a basic climbing wall, they're all kind of like the, the holds tend to be rock looking and at least mm-hmm. the one uh, competition I was watching, there were like points coming out of the wall. So I think the yeah. announcers were calling it like pointillism or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> what what yeah, what different it. types of surfaces do you encounter? Because it was it was interesting to see things that you know made the climbing wall really difficult. The thing with competition climbing uh, mm-hmm. is that again it, it did evolve from outdoor rock climbing. That's where our sport really kind of originated. So if you look at a mountainside or a cliffside or a sheer rock face, you know, you'll see pretty uh, uniform texture or grain or things like this when you're looking at something like Yosemite or you're in the Alps seeing the side of the mountain cliffs there. So that's kind of like where our sport originated. But because of the way that sports evolved, it's now become a much more spectator-friendly sport, I would say, and a much more gymnastic sport as compared to, you know, if you were to just go outdoor rock climbing on in Yosemite or in the Alps. So again, in, in outdoor rock climbing standpoints, again, it's usually a pretty uniform surface. Like you have these kind of 
placements where you can put your hands and feet. But in a rock climbing competition that you're going to be seeing in Tokyo, it'll probably be very, very apparent, you know, on the wall where these competitors will need to go because the wall, again, the surface can change, the holds themselves can change. And what uh, these course setters really love to do is put uh, a lot of style and color and flair into these to the point where they're kind of like abstract art projects. <laughs> They'll be seeing not just, you know, kind of uniform color or texture on the wall, but you'll see these very vibrant colors. Like, okay, there's a huge red circular disc in the middle of the wall that the competitors have to maneuver themselves around. Or they'll put like uh, what we call volumes, which is basically a, an extension of the wall that is not necessarily a climbing hold, but it's not necessarily part of the wall either. That's so basically kind of like additions to the wall that you can kind of place to break up the surface texture, or break up the uh, monotony of what a normal climbing wall would be. And so what ends up happening is that as a spectator, you'll be seeing these competitors kind of jump around and, and do these very difficult moves on, again, these like kind of abstract art projects. <laughs> um, so it, it's very, very different than what you know, com competitions used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or even if you were to compare it to outdoor rock climbing in the Yosemite or the Alps, uh, but in a good way. And I think it'll be, it'll be really visually appealing for people to watch at home because it'll be very obvious or apparent a lot of the times, okay, well, they're stuck on this like really huge green globular hold and they have to like move themselves and get into these like very contorted, flexible positions. Uh, or very powerful positions in order to maneuver themselves around these big holds. So that's the, the thing you'd be looking for a lot of the time, is that it'll be kind of a artistic sort of expression on the wall, and the competitors have to figure out their way around these you know, art projects, I would say, in order to get to the top. Talk to us a little bit about what you wear, especially the shoes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So as a competitor... The most important element of your climbing gear, I guess there would be two probably most important things. <laughs> One would be your climbing shoes. So similar to an ice skating skate or a track and field shoe or any other piece of field equipment where it's your feet contacting another surface, climbing shoes are you know unique to the sport of climbing. And they're very specialized in there. They're one of the most important part of the climber's arsenal besides their hands. Because the two things that are coming in contact with the wall are your feet and your hands. And that's what's kind of getting you up these climbing walls. So the climbing shoes themselves are usually made of leather or artificial materials. And the points of contact that you have are usually your toes, like the very tips of your toes or your heel. And what we, the, the terminology they're going to use a lot of the time when people are doing this move with your heels is they'll be calling it a heel hook. So that, if you hear that in the climbing broadcast, that's what you'll understand what it means. It just means using their heel to send themselves up the wall. So the climbing shoes, they are going to look a lot like ballet shoes to come to a very, very sharp point at the end. And again, not like when you first, if you're going to first try out climbing, like you don't want to get like the high-end Olympic level shoes because they're probably going to be very uncomfortable <laughs> the first time you try it out. <laughs> the idea of having these like very pointy, very specific shoes is that you want to have the most control or precision that you can possibly have out of these shoes because sometimes, sometimes you'll be stepping on you know a hole that'll be very big and you can kind of place your foot wherever you need to on it. But other times, you're going to be placing your feet on things that are 
they're thinner than the thickness of a quarter or a penny. And that's what you have to put your entire body weight on and step up. So imagine like stepping up on a ladder rung, but the ladder rung, the thickness of it is the thickness of a penny. So that's what these climbers have to put themselves through. <laughs> so that, that'll be the cool thing about watching people climbing shoes is that, again, they have a very specific blend of rubber that has ideally the highest amount of friction between the shoe and the wall surface or the hold. And they've been very carefully engineered so that they have the highest amount of friction between those two surfaces. Uh, and then the second thing I'm going to talk about is their hands, or more specifically, the chalk that they use. So the chalk is, again, you know, very similar to what you see in gymnastic competitions, like gymnastic chalk. But sometimes climbers will not only chalk up before their climb, but they'll actually chalk up while they're on the climb. And in order to do so, they'll have a portable, what we call, chalk bag. And what they'll do is they'll strap this around their waist, so that's hanging off the, the, their back, like right around the back area and what they'll do is if their hands start to get sweaty they'll be able to reach behind their back and put their hand into their chalk bag and re-chalk their hand so that way when they grab the next hold they'll have again the best chance of holding on to it rather than their hands getting slippery or you know, getting too fatigued or, or you want to just kind of maintain this ideal amount of friction between your hands and your feet and the wall surface. Are there substances that are illegal to put on your hands? Um, not that I'm aware of. Like, again, you know, you could put glue on your hands. Like, that would just not work. <laughs> like, no one does this. I'm just making an extreme example. But, like, let's say you put glue on your hands and you got on the wall, you would be stuck, but then you couldn't move either. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe there are any illegal substances. I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and look through the rule book. But yeah, like, I mean, you want to be able to have the best success for yourself as possible. And so usually climbers will either put as much chalk on their hands as possible. But again, the other thing I actually didn't mention earlier is sometimes you'll actually see competitors using a brush to remove chalk from the hold before they climb. And so again, the ideal, the, the idea behind this is to try and create the a perfect level of friction. So there, there becomes this kind of, I guess, saturation point where you have too much chalk. <laughs> and so, again, if you're maybe the last climber to go on a certain climb, there's been, you know, seven climbers that have gone before you. So if there's that many climbers that have tried this exact move over and over and over again and fallen off, the, the buildup of chalk and, and dirt on one of the holds might be a little bit too high. So it actually reduce your friction. So you want to have this, like, kind of middle ground of just having enough chalk but not too much <laughs> so that's kind of the thing that these athletes will be trying to do on a wall both with their shoes and their chalk and brushing the chalk off of the hold does anybody climb barefoot it is not allowed in competition but there are examples of comp not competitors uh, athletes who climb outdoors at a very very high level actually with no shoes <laughs> so it's pretty rare um, i think most people climb with rock climbing shoes on because they've been engineered to be really i guess ergonomic for your feet now that we've had a lot of you know research put into climbing but also have again the highest amount of coefficient coefficient of friction between your shoe and your foot and the wall how long does a pair of shoes last um a pair of shoes typically last well again depending on the thickness and the make and the style and the hardness of the rubber 
I would say anywhere from like four months to a year, uh, maybe longer if you're treating them well. But usually, again, like if you're watching these competitors compete at the Olympic level events, they're putting their shoes through a lot of wear and tear. So their shoes are going to be pretty trashed after maybe a couple months. <laughs> and uh, that's when they'll have to get a new pair of shoes. Right. And what what do those run for like your level? For the highest caliber level, actually, you know, as climbers, we think it's expensive, but, you know, I've, I've been around enough sports now to know that they're like not really that expensive <laughs> compared to other high-end sports. <laughs> yeah. So the, the highest, highest possible end pair of rock climbing shoes out there right now is probably about 200 US dollars, which is, you know, expensive, but like, it's not like a pair of soccer football shoes that are like in the thousands of euros or something like this, or, <laughs> or biking shoes that are, you know, very specifically engineered so that they can have the lightest possible carbon fiber, etc. I don't know. <laughs> so it's it's expensive, but like not that expensive for being like you know the highest caliber Olympic level shoes. And I'm sure you know after you know this first Olympic competition and and more money and more research is put into development of climbing equipment and climbing gear. Um, you know, the, the amount of technology that will go into it will go higher, which, of course, will drive the price point up. But, you know, the good thing is that the entry-level shoes are still reasonably cheap. Um, you can buy a reasonably good pair of rock climbing shoes for anywhere from $25 to $40 uh, U.S., so not too expensive. And, again, it, like, it'll get you up the wall. <laughs> but the highest level pair of climbing shoes that you'll be seeing with competitors wearing at the Olympics will be roughly around like 180 to $200. Yeah, that's not bad. Do you have to buy your own hand chalk too? Or um, is that provided? Uh, Usually competitors will bring their own chalk. Okay. Um, Are there multiple brands to choose from and you figure out what works best for you? Exactly, yeah. Okay. There's there's definitely a lot of different types of brands. People have their own specific preferences. Some people actually use what we call liquid chalk, which is essentially chalk mixed with rubbing alcohol. So they'll pour that over their hands before they climb, and what that does is it provides a little bit longer-lasting chalk on your hands because after the alcohol evaporates, the chalk will be kind of like absorbed into your pores a little bit more, which... Now, not so great for long-term, like, health reasons, <laughs> but, you know, for short-term, if you're competing in a competition, you know, it, it's pretty effective and lasts you a little bit more than the powder chalk you'll see in people's chalk bags. What you'll end up seeing is sometimes people, it'll look like maybe they wear gloves, but that's actually just chalk that they've applied earlier on that is the alcohol is evaporated and it's kind of dried into their hands. Okay. That sounds really comfortable. <laughs> Yep. So so to be a good climber, you need a lot of body strength overall. So strong back, strong yep. fingers and hands and legs and even toes and feet. W- what other skills do you need to be good? Absolutely. Climbing, I personally really like because, again, it's not just about how physically strong you are. In all sports, there's three components that you have to take into account to figure out, you know, your ability at that high level of an athlete, those being strength, technique, and mental approach. And in some sports, you know, one of those may dominate over the others. So if you take a look at, like, sprinting, for example, like, it's mostly physical ability. You have to have technique, of course, 
and there's not as much. I mean, the mental approach you have to have for sure. Like, you want to be able to pressure, so not to demean sprinters or anything like this. But, I mean, it, it's a purely physical endeavor that you have to be able to physically able to do. And, and even if you're the smartest athlete out there, it's not going to go quite as far as it will if you're the strongest physically. And, of course, if you look at another end of the spectrum, if you look at an activity like chess, for example, <laughs> you know, you have to be the smartest possible competitor you can be rather than being physically strong enough to, I don't know, move a piece across the board. <laughs> doesn't get you quite as far as being the most intellectually talented athlete out there. But then, of course, there's technique as well, and, and that goes a long way. So with climbing, each of these components, strength, technique, and mental approach, is, in my opinion, equal in terms of importance as to how good of a climber or the ability of a climber can be. And so... When you look at someone climb, especially in the climbing or bouldering events, you'll note that you know some people will have very, very different body types or climbing styles compared to others. No one type of body type or climbing style is, is more dominant over the others simply because whatever area that you may be lacking in, you can make up in another way, whether it be figuring out a move that no one else could do based on your mental approach or being physically stronger than other climbers to be able to pull off a move that no one else could do, or in technique, figuring out, okay, I can get into this body position or have the flexibility to be able to you know, maneuver my way around this in a very, very tricky or you know, subtle way that other competitors who maybe didn't have that technique ability to be able to do. So I think that's the cool part that we're going to see a lot of, especially when it gets into later rounds of bouldering and lead climbing is that there's so many different ways to get at the top. There's no one set way. And again, the, the goal is all the same. You want to get up the wall as far as you can. But, you know, competitors have vastly different styles of approach to doing this. And based on their own climbing style, their own abilities, their own strengths and weaknesses, everyone's going to have a different way of tackling these courses. Very interesting. This will, Yeah, this will be fun to watch, I think. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Josh, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Follow Josh as he trains to qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. You can find him at his website, joshc11.com. On Twitter, he is josh111. On Facebook, he is josh.c.11. On Insta, he is josh.11. And on LinkedIn, he is levenjosh. And we will have links to all of those in our show notes. You know, if Josh made you inspired to work out, why not do it in Olympic Fever gear? We've got all sorts of items and designs in our Tee Public store. So go to olimfever.com and click on the link to buy something comfortable and support the show. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Bradley Wilson made the podium at the World Cup Moguls event in Tazawako, Japan. Modern pentathlete Samantha Achterberg qualified for the finals of the Modern Pentathlon World Cup in Cairo, which is going to be on March 1st. During finals each day, you can watch a live stream of the fencing bonus round, riding, laser run, and the medal ceremony on UIPM TV and YouTube with no geographical restrictions. Yay! The laser run and medal ceremony can also be watched live on Facebook. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes. This weekend is also the Bobsled World Championships in Whistler, Canada on March 2nd and 3rd. Team Olympic Fever member Lauren Gibbs will be in the sled with Brittany Reinbolt and Josh Williamson will be racing with Cody Bascu in the two-man and the four-man events. So good luck to 
both of you, and I hope you both do really well. And then Claire Egan will be competing in at the Biathlon World Championships in Ostersund, Sweden, and that's starting on March 7th. So good luck to all of our Team Olympic Fever members. We'll be rooting for you and uh, hope you all do your best. On that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. We'll catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thank you to our Patreon patrons. It's another month, so that means those at the $5 uh, level and above will be getting some bonus audio coming up this weekend. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And until next week, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Yeah, so it'll be confusing for sure, but bear with us.